So last week, we saw in Genesis 10, the table of nations, we saw, uh, how the, the, we saw the spreading of the nations, we saw how they multiplied and filled the earth. And this week in chapter 11, we're going to see again how the peoples spread over the earth, but we're going to see it from a different point of view. What we have here in Genesis 10 and 11 is the same story told in two different ways. In Genesis 10, we read the story from a high level, a very high level. We see on a grand scale the movements of all the peoples of the earth. We see where the people spread to and which clans, tribes, and nations they become, and all with their own languages. Now, in Genesis 11, we read the same story, but at a much lower level. So last week, we saw God's plan for fruitful multiplication fulfilled throughout the whole world. And this week, we see the actions of a people of just a single city and God's response to their actions. We read about pride and disobedience, and we read about God's response in judgment, but also in mercy. As we're looking at this story in Babel, you can also be thinking for yourself, you can think, how do I want God to respond to me when I am disobedient, when I fall short of the mark? What do I want him to respond to me like? So, the first thing that we need to know about this story, that's the second view of the story, the first thing we need to know is that Genesis 11 takes place during Genesis 10. And I'll explain what I mean. So, let's look at verse 1. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And you might think, well, hold on a second. One language and the same words... And then we look down at verse 9, where it says that from there, God dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And you might think, dispersed over the face of the earth? I thought they were already dispersed. I seem specifically to remember reading last week in verse 32 of chapter 10 that these are the clans of the sons of Noah, and from these nations, these, the nations spread abroad after the flood. And I remember several times reading of the sons of Japheth, the sons of Ham, and the sons of Shem, that, that by their clans, their languages, and their lands, they were spread over the earth. So, this makes sense when we consider that we're reading the same story twice, but from different perspectives. So, think about it like you might consider a light-hearted crime drama, like Knives Out, Now You See Me, The Italian Job, or Ocean's Eleven. One of the basic storytelling devices in these films is that you find out what happened early on in the film. There's no mystery as to what happened. The thrill of the film is watching this same story unfold but told from different perspectives. And now you're watching this and you're discovering how it happened. So in Genesis 10, we see what happened. The outward expansion of humanity. The earth is full of people. And now when we look at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see how this happened. So, Genesis 1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. All right, look at this. I think we have a map. Almost. Okay. Now, Here is Shinar, there is, well, it's called Babylon here, Babel, Babylon's the same place. Okay, why wouldn't you want 
to settle here, right? Why wouldn't you want to settle there in the land of Shinar, located around the Tigris and Euphrates River, the rich soil in Shinar is excellent for farming, and it's almost the perfect spot to build your shiny new city. Almost perfect, because the land of Shinar is great for farming, but it's not great for building. See, in Israel, cities are constructed out of stone, cut stone and mortar, but in Shinar, there is no ready source for stone. So you make bricks out of mud, and you dry them in the sun. But when your bricks get wet because it rains or because the river floods, your bricks turn back into mud. But with the development of firing, of burning the mud bricks, they become hard and durable. And you assemble them with tar that's locally available in tar pits. And now you can build something that will last. So they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So they had brick for stone and bitumen, which is tar, for mortar. Now, we're going to look at verse 4, and this is where it starts to get interesting, okay? So, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. And you might think, hmm, okay. Now, a tower with its top in the heavens. Hmm, I wonder what that means. And let us make a name for ourselves. And you might think, well, this is starting to sound not so great. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we, dis- lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Okay, maybe we have a problem here. So, somehow, building a city with a tower will help us to establish a reputation in order that we can remain together in this one place. Now, there's two ways to look at this. In one way, some of what the people are trying to achieve, it's really not that bad. They don't want to be dispersed. They are looking to preserve community. They live in a fallen world which can be dangerous, and they're looking for the safety provided by living together and living in a city. They're looking to gain a reputation, to get uh, credibility uh, with the other communities and the other peoples and the other cities around them. And they're looking to enhance their lives using technology. They can build a city that will last. They can provide community. They can provide safety. And their fame can grow. So that's one way to look at this. There's a second way to look at it as well. So, they said, let's build a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, I don't believe that they actually believed themselves that they were going to build a tower so high that its top was literally going to the heavens. And I don't think they thought that anymore that you or I think that when we go to New York City and we see a skyscraper, that it's literally scraping the sky. So we say skyscraper when we mean a really tall building, right? Well, here, a tower with its top in the heavens refers to a very specific kind of building. And what this most likely means is a ziggurat. What is a ziggurat? I'm glad you asked, because we've got one on the screen. Okay, so a ziggurat is a massive pagan religious structure. It looks like a pyramid, but it's not a pyramid. And it's not a temple. See, a temple is either attached to the ziggurat, or it's sometimes built on top of the ziggurat, but the purpose of this structure with these stairs is that it's a way for the god of the temple to get from heaven down to earth so that he can travel back and forth between the heavens or the earth. I guess otherwise it's too far. 
and he, just, he, he can't make it, so he needs, he needs like a stepladder or something. So, they, so they're going to build, build this tower. And in fact, Babel in Akkadian means the gate of the gods. Now, what better way can you think of to ensure the success of your new city than by gaining the favor of a god? So we're going to build this tower. And they said, let us make a name for ourselves. And why not? The founder of Babel, he'd made a name for himself. If we look back into chapter 10 in verses 8 through 12, we can read the story of Nimrod. And we read that Cush fathered Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh and other great cities. So Nimrod is a king. He's a king of a kingdom, maybe even a king of two kingdoms, because the beginning of his kingdom is Babel, and then afterwards he goes north to, uh, and founds uh, Nineveh and the other great cities. So Nimrod was a king. He's a great builder of cities, and apparently he's also quite the outdoorsman. So if you're out in Connemara with Parik doing a little bit of fly fishing and you catch the biggest fish of the day, fish of the day he might turn to you and say, see there, you're like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. <laughs> so Nimrod is a man with a great name, and he's the founder of your city. Why not try to live up to the greatness of your heritage? Nimrod the hunter was a great builder. We can be builders too. Let's build a city for ourselves and a stairway between heaven and earth for our God. Do you want to legitimize yourself in the eyes of the people around you? Better build yourself a ziggurat. Now, the most problematic thing that they say in verse 4 is that they want to do these things so that we are not spread out over the face of the earth. And this is problematic because what God blessed, when God blessed Noah in chapter 9, he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And he says again in chapter 9, be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So what's happening at Babel isn't what God had in mind. God says to go and they say no. God says fill the earth and they respond, but we can do so much more if we stick together. My plan, God, is better than your plan. Your plan doesn't make sense. And do you ever feel like that yourself? Do you ever find yourself in the position where you think you could do better for yourself or you think you could do better for those people around you than what God has laid out? Now, if we're being honest with ourselves, we all think that at times, right? Because we don't understand always what God is doing. So the question is, what do we do with that thought? Do we believe it? Do we act on it? Do we turn away from God or do we turn to God? Do we obey or do, do I do it my own way? So let's see what happens next. So there's a saying where you might say, that guy over there, he's like a dog chasing cars. He wouldn't know what to do with one if he caught it. So these people in Babel building their ziggurat, building their gate of the gods, building the stairway, wanting to invite a god down into their city? Well, they're about to find out that they're the dog that caught the car, and it's a little bit more than what they can handle. So this ziggurat, this access point, 
what if, what if this is your city and you've built this thing, but then a God actually uses it and shows up in your city? So the Lord, in verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man built. The Lord came down. So he kind of takes them up on their offer. He's like, all right, I'll use your stairs. Let's come down and see what we've got going on. But it's not just a God or the God that they were trying to entice that comes to visit them. It's the God, the only God, the true God, the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe. He accepts the offer. He comes down for a visit. You wanted a visit from God. How about this? Only God doesn't come down to bless their city or to make it prosper or to offer them fame and security. He says, behold, these are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. So let us go down there and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. So unity and community is a good thing. Paul writes a letter about that to the church in Philippians. It's a good, godly thing, but a good thing in opposition to God is not a good thing. What God says about them is that nothing they do, excuse me, nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them. It testifies to the creative imagination present in humanity because we are created in God's image. God is a God of creation and creativity and imagination, and we are creative too because that's how he made us. When humanity comes together as a creative force for good, there is much that has been accomplished. We've sent mankind to the moon. Mankind has composed beautiful symphonies, and mankind has cured terrible diseases. And all of this because we're created in God's image. But a good thing set up in opposition to God, it's no longer a good thing. So God comes down to confuse their language, and he disperses them over the face of the earth in verses 7 through 9. In verse, in verse 9, we see, therefore, uh, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And so, uh, there, there's actually quite a few play on words in this passage. Uh, some of them were more interesting than others. We're not going to go over all of them. But this one, this, one is, this one is important. So, in verse 9, we need to look at the words Babel and confused. So, Babel in Akkadian means the gate of the gods. Babel isn't a, Hebrew, isn't a Hebrew word, so it doesn't mean anything in Hebrew, but it sounds very similar to the Hebrew word for confused. So what we're reading here when, uh, in, in verse 9 is sort of like saying, therefore, its name was called confusion because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Or it could be like an ancient insult from a second year. The gate of the gods, more like the gate of confused, so this story begins with the people of Babel looking to lift themselves up, to make a name for themselves, to provide for themselves safety, community, and security. And some of these things that they're looking to do are even good things, but they've unified themselves in opposition to God and to God's plan. And they end up in a position where they receive exactly what they feared, separation and dispersion. So in a way, they did make a name for themselves, but it's not the name that they were hoping for. So last week, we saw that from the very beginning, 
God intended humanity to thrive and grow and expand outward from the Garden of Eden and fill the whole earth with a people that know God, that love God, that walk with God and worship God. And we saw in Genesis 10, the table of nations, the fulfillment of God's blessing of Noah and his sons to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So that's what happened. And now in Genesis 11, we see how it happened. And while the fruitful, excuse me, the physical expansion of fruitful multiplication has been fulfilled, the spiritual expansion, the people that know, love, walk with, and worship God, that's not yet complete. And what we see in the story of the Tower of Babel is God, sovereign over all creation. He is the one that's in control. God's plan to create a people for himself is moving forward, and it can't be stopped. It can't be stopped by the disobedience of the people. God's plans cannot be stopped. God's plan from the very beginning is for humanity to grow into a people filling the whole earth that know him and love him and worship him. And God's plan cannot be stopped. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We call this the fall. And we see the effects of the fall throughout Genesis up to the point where we are now. In Genesis 3, mankind breaks the relationship with God. But God's plan cannot be stopped. So Adam and Eve's sin is judged. They're punished. They're expelled from the garden. But God provides for them so that they can live. And he gives them the first hint of his rescue plan, that one day a descendant of the woman will come that will crush the head of Satan. So we see that sin results in judgment and punishment, but there is also grace from God and a promise of hope for the future. So when Cain murders Abel, he is judged for the murder. He's sent off as a wanderer, but he is also given a sign of protection. When the wickedness of mankind becomes so great that God sends the flood as punishment for evil, he also preserves a family to begin the process of recreation and a new beginning. Now, in the story of the Tower of Babel, God punishes the sins of pride and disobedience with confusion and scattering. But there's also a story of hope for the future. It's the story of God's plan for restored mankind. So there's another play on words that we're going to look at. In verse 4, the people said, let us make a name for ourselves. The Hebrew word for name is Shem, as in Noah's son, Shem. So the people say, let us make a Shem for ourselves. But now in verse 10, we see these are the generations of Shem. So we can trace in this genealogy and in all the genealogies in Genesis, we can trace from the beginning when the promise is made that the, that the Savior will come to crush the head of the snake, we can trace that all the way through to Shem. And now we can follow this from Shem, Arpachshed, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sarag, Nahor, Terah, and Abram. And this is the hope of the restored humanity. Because God tells Abram in what we're going to see soon in Genesis 12 uh, verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abram's name does become great, but not because of anything he did, but because of what God did. Because from Abram comes Jesus, the Savior of the world. 
And the people of Babel, they wanted to make a name for themselves, but God's response is that he will make the name, and it's not the name that they're thinking of. Out of the ruins of disobedience comes the hope of salvation, and it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God, and that is great news. Now, there's certainly a lesson that we can learn here from the Tower of Babel, a lesson that we can learn about pride, right? That one seems maybe a bit on the surface. We can see that. And Scripture has a lot to say about this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he says, uh, that's uh, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. And in Proverbs 14.12, he says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. But even more than pride, the thing to take away from the story of Babel is what God is telling us about himself. In Job 42, Job confesses to God. He says, I know, God, that you can do all things, and I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted because God is sovereign. God's plan cannot be stopped, and it doesn't matter what you and I do. If God has set himself to accomplish something, it will be accomplished. So we're looking at one story, right? One story, two perspectives. In Genesis 10, we see the nations spread abroad on the earth, presented as the outworking of God's blessing for fruitful multiplication. But in Genesis 11, we see the peoples dispersed over the face of the earth in spite of their disobedience in thinking that they can do something better than God's plan. So think about your life. Do you want to go with the Genesis 10 experience, or do you want to go with the Genesis 11 experience? Do you want to fall in line with God's plan to advance God's plan, or do you want to see God's plan go forward in spite of your own plans? We can also think about this in terms of kingdoms. See, Nimrod was a mighty man and a builder of kingdoms. His kingdom was in opposition to God's kingdom. Now, we build kingdoms too, right? What kingdoms am I building? What kingdoms are you building in your life? Now, we often think about kingdoms maybe like idols. Uh, We might come up with a vice list, you know, uh, and so we could say things like, okay, am I building a kingdom of money uh, or greed, power, fame? Am I building my own personal brand? Am I looking to find satisfaction in sex outside of marriage? And these are all bad things, and we shouldn't do them. We shouldn't make these things idols. We shouldn't build kingdoms around these things. But from this story, we also see that good things can become bad kingdoms too, right? Unity, the unity of the people of Babel, unity is good, but unity standing against God, that's not good anymore. Now that's sin. So a good thing in opposition to God is not a good thing. So are there good kingdoms that you're building in opposition to God? Some things that we can make into idols could be things like serving in the church. I serve in the church, but I don't actually know the Lord. I don't spend time with the Lord. I have no relationship with him. My relationship with my spouse, I can turn that into a kingdom or an idol. If you're a parent, you can put your children and your love for your children, you can put that above your love for God. If you're a student, You can put your studies ahead of your relationship with God, and you can build a kingdom there in your studies and in your schools. You can build a kingdom with your family, with your friends, with sex. And all of these things are good things. These are godly things. 
But when we idolize them, we build kingdoms around them. And we're not building God's kingdom. So what kingdom am I building? And what kingdom are you building? Are you on board with building God's kingdom? Or are you just off on the side, quietly, trying to build your own? If you're building your own kingdom, I encourage you, stop it. Get on board with God's plan. There's one last thing. That God's plan cannot be stopped is good news. It's the message of the gospel right here in Genesis 11. God's plan cannot be stopped because His plan is not dependent on our actions. Certainly, God's plan cannot be stopped in our disobedience, but even when we try to obey, when we are walking with the Lord, even when I obey God and I'm trying to get in line with His plan, I still live in a broken world and I'm still a sinner because, well, because I am. And that results in I can't obey God perfectly, even when I want to, even when I'm trying to. So if you're here this morning and that's you, that's what you're thinking about right now. Maybe you're discouraged and beaten down and you feel broken in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you're plagued with recurring sin that you just can't seem to get out of the grip of? Do you feel spiritually poor? Does your walk with God feel more like a crawl? Do you feel like you want to love God more, but you just don't know how? It doesn't feel possible. Take heart. Be encouraged. God's plan doesn't depend on your actions. God's love for you doesn't depend on your ability to withstand temptation. God's redemption of you doesn't depend on you doing certain things. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit doesn't depend on your faithfulness or your diligence. In our disappointments and our failures in making names for ourselves, in our disobedience and in our turning away from God, God's redemptive purpose and His plan moves forward, in the, and it cannot be stopped, and it moves for, forward in the world at large, in the grand scheme of time, and it moves forward in our own lives as well. God loves us. God loves you. He knows what's best for us, and in His mercy, He doesn't always let us have what we think it is that we want. Let's pray. God, uh, thank you. Thank you, that you, um, that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you speak to us today. God, you are a good God and a merciful God and a loving God. And we thank you that you don't let us have, your way, have our way. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts and that you would help us to know you and to love you, that you would teach us, Lord, through, through your word and through your Holy Spirit, you, that you would move in our hearts and our minds, and that you would reveal to us, Lord, the areas of our lives where we've built little kingdoms, where we are turning against you, even, even with good things, Lord, where we're putting them ahead of you. Lord, reveal those things to us. Give us, give us the wisdom to, to, to hear your voice and to obey it. Lord, give us the wisdom to, to understand your word 
and obey it. Draw us to you. Teach us to love you. In all these things we pray. Amen.